I'll start over by saying there is no like several types of learning, right? There is no like it's either you learn or you don't learn. Mm. And learning essentially is a very, very natural process. Like we do it all the time. We do it as adults, as kids. This is our way to survive changes in modern life and like everything. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode three of the Education 4.0 series. This week's episode of our series looks at where, when and how will learning happen when many of us spend lots of time online. How are universities and colleges adapting to our connected world? The more people kind of spend time online in their social lives, in their personal lives, the more they expect to be able to learn online as well. What models will emerge to suit new students around their learning, financial and social needs? You know, education has gotten so expensive that anything that's going to be able to bring the cost down and keep the quality somewhat in check is going to roll. So it's not, that's not something like we can't resist it, even the inst- because if institutions say, no, we're not going to do it, somebody will do it. And mm. kids are going to do it because instead of spending $80,000 a year, they'll spend $20,000 a year. And, and that's, you know, hard to argue with. Yeah. But I, I think we can build this in a way that, that it doesn't have to take away. Like, we can rebuild the dynamic. We just have to not fool ourselves to always think that everyone has to be working at exactly their own pace and things like that. Because that ruins a lot of the dynamics of learning. Mm-hmm. There's a famous line from the, the Mishnah, the oral Jewish law. It says, like, I've learned a lot from my masters, my teachers. I've learned more from my colleagues, and I've learned the most from my students. Yeah. So, like, that, you know, that bit of 1,500-year-old wisdom is, I think, still true. How is online learning shaping the physical world and our peer-to-peer connections? I don't know how to describe it. It's basically a playa. Anyone who, who went traveling in Central or South America knows what it is when you say, come to the playa. It's like, it's a beautiful beach. It's in the middle of the jungle. And we have a co-work there and we have Wi-Fi and we have our teachers there. So you are like in this maybe a retreatish kind of situation mm-hmm. where you're in nature, but you're also connected very much to the local community that lives there because we work a lot with the local community inside the campus and you're very connected to the process that you're going through if it's your personal process or your online studying like everything is nourished in this setting in the setting of being on a beach in the jungle traveling through this tiny town it's yeah it's very it's very nice And can university and college learning be scaled in a meaningful way? Well, I think the largest that we've tested in our system has probably been in the thousands. But for us particularly, and I I, I can't speak for other technologies, but for our technology in particular, the larger the size, the larger the number of submissions, the more confident we are in our judgment about who's in the same cluster or not. And in fact, you know, the, the speed gets faster, not an absolute level, but a relative level per submission. So if we have 
you know, 10,000 people or 20,000 people, that's going to make for a better product and better outcomes than if we have, you know, 200 people. In fact, I was talking to a, a professor from China at an online school who has millions. And I started to think about the impact of that and how fantastic the learning can be because a whole range of subjects that, that we formerly sort of thought might not be possible to use with, with the types of models that we employ may now become possible. And so there you really see that as sizes go up, there, there really can be some advantages. James Clay is JISC's lead for higher education, teaching and learning. He's long been involved in this world. So what did he think about some of these questions and what online learning constitutes exactly? So yes, thanks very much for joining us this morning, James. You're welcome. For our listeners, do you mind explaining a little bit about your particular role at JISC? Yep, no problem at all. So I'm the head of higher education and student experience at JISC and the support of higher education and the student experience is a key pillar of JISC's mission. You know, our members are universities as well as colleges. And what we're trying to do at JISC is to help those institutions to use technology better in order to enhance and improve the student experience. So my role is quite, to be honest, I do a wider variety of stuff from implementing the higher education student experience strategy, but also working with colleagues across all our different directorates to help them to understand what the needs are of higher education, but also what they can also do to improve the student experience. I had this conversation with somebody recently where I said, if you take these things away, you suddenly realize how important they are to teaching and learning. So simple is ubiquitous connectivity, which is a great phrase, or eduroam, or the Wi-Fi, you know, the Wi-Fi just works. Mm-hmm. And I think this is something that when your Wi-Fi doesn't work or you're in a location where connectivity is poor, suddenly you realize how dependent you are on that. You know, students today are very dependent on accessing a huge range of kind of resources and conversations and collaboration areas. And often some of these are provided by the university, the virtual learning environment, for example, but also they'll be using their own spaces. We, we know, for example, that a lot of students use WhatsApp to keep in touch with each mm-hmm. other. So I spoke to a a professional from a university who asked the students how they wanted to communicate and they said you, we want to communicate via Snapchat Messenger and so you know they were bouncing and back and forth some of their questions that they were working on and she found that the students that were um, perhaps otherwise a bit more isolated so I think it was some international Chinese students were sort of starting to engage in different ways so that was quite interesting I thought. Yeah I mean we often think about technology as being something you know all these kind of Snapchat and WhatsApp have all been new. The reality is, is that in the in the olden days, you know, not that long ago, when I was a student, for example, we didn't have this kind of technology. But what we did have was we had uh, places to go and drink coffee. Um, mm. I was going to say the bar, but that's probably, <laughs> you know, but it was the social areas. And I think what you've just hit the nail on the head for me is one of the real advantages of an online space is that it can be much more inclusive. These, these other spaces still exist. Students still go out for coffee. They still go and meet in spaces, informal learning areas, parts of the library and so on. So that kind of informal collaboration and working together and discussing what they're doing on their courses still happens. But the online spaces that they also exist in actually allow them to do that at a time and space that's convenient to them. It becomes more inclusive, as you say, 
students, for, for example, whose English is not their first language may struggle in a verbal communication, may find an online environment more welcoming. And for the, the huge number of students out there who are not the traditional 18 to 21-year-olds undergraduates, people who may have dependents, may have childcare issues, may have part-time jobs, commuting students, which is another big group of people, people for them, these online environments can actually be a real kind of bonus to their to their whole student experience and actually something that, that would never have happened 20, 30 years ago. So online isn't just about formal online learning. It's also the informal online learning spaces and the technologies that simply make them work, which are important. But what do students want from teaching and learning using digital? So we've been running something called the Student Experience Insight Survey, which allows students to talk about their digital experiences, but also their preferences as well. And then universities can use data from that in order to think about how they provide digital services to students for themselves. So, yes, so the 37,000 participants last year drawn from 83 further and higher education organisations, and we believe it to be the largest sample of data looking at students' digital experience of its kind. But the sort of things that come out from there are actually quite interesting. So we know that 74% of higher education students rated the quality of digital teaching and learning on their courses above average, you know, is either good, excellent, or the best imaginable, you know, which means that actually from their perspective, they see digital as being something good, something that's helping them to learn. And, you know, we talk about kind of quality. Of course, quality isn't a static thing. It doesn't stay there. We can continue to make improvements and to enhance. It's constantly moving feast. We know that students use digital. 70% of HE students use digital tools on a weekly basis to look for resources that haven't been recommended by their lecturer. So they're going out, they're using search tools, they're using discovery tools to find new resources and to share those resources. And we mustn't forget the the value that assistive digital technologies provide students who have um, particular needs, whether that's even simple things of text-to-speech, for example, or speech-to-text, live-to-text, a whole range of different things. So students who have particular needs can use assistive technologies in order to enable them to to not worry about it, to be honest. But getting the online and offline mix right for learning is notoriously difficult. Critics point to large cohorts of already highly educated learners navigating the maze of more formal online learning resources before dropping out due to ever lower engagement levels. At the same time, the wealth of online learning opportunities is one of our great treasures – where we started off with printing cheap, high-quality literature, dictionaries and religious texts, we have carried on with vaults of tutorial videos, covering everything from maths, social history and even AI. I think it's obviously a massively growing area. I think the more people kind of spend time online in their social lives, in their personal lives, the more they expect to be able to learn online as well. However. For me, that doesn't, I don't feel like MOOCs are the, the way to necessarily go. I think some people are doing some amazing things with MOOCs, but I think that the really large scale kind of self-guided learning does have impact on motivation and does have impact on the quality of learning sometimes. So for, for me, it's all about how we can get that same experience or an equivalent experience that a learner would get if they were coming into a classroom and working with a group of peers and a you know an expert tutor through the digital technology so it's thinking a lot about how the tutor 
can facilitate learning, how we can create communities through digital technologies and things like that. One woman defining the opportunity of online learning is Hattie Abretti, a digital learning development manager at one of the fastest growing further and higher education colleges in the UK. Her latest project looks at how the effective use of technology can provide a learning experience that is every bit as rich as that of campus-based learners. Well, this is a really interesting point because one of our earlier guests talks about communities and, um, you know, whether that's on Twitter or other informal but online spaces of peer-to-peer learning and exchange, essentially. So when you talk about community, Mm. what, what does that mean? For you and how have you come across that in your role as a digital learning development manager? Yeah absolutely so I think informal spaces are, are definitely one thing to be aware of and I think they can work really well for some of our adult learners. Obviously um, working in FE sometimes we have younger learners as well although a lot of our current distance and digital flexible provision is aimed more at our adult learners you know we do have to be aware of kind of safeguarding concerns and things like that you know, if we think about maybe using the more informal community groups, there are issues there with how we can kind of moderate them and how we can make sure that, you know, any safeguarding and prevent issues are being watched there, I guess. So it, it can be a bit of a block when using those sorts of things. So we get around that with using things such as Microsoft Teams, which is kind of a happy hybrid, I guess, in between. Uh, you know, it has the feel of being a nice informal space and actually lets you have chat functionalities and live chats and synchronous communications as well as the kind of more text-based comms that you, you know you use to build a community online often so that that's one way that we do it I think we also try to encourage sort of webinars and things like that so you know again it's getting access to the tutor and making sure that that they are kind of facilitating some of that group where we also I'm a big advocate of a group work and collaboration online. Mm-hmm. I think one of the, the great things about digital technologies is that you can collaborate with someone that's, you know, on the other side of the world effectively. So it's making use of those technologies. And obviously that does still involve a member of staff facilitating and driving that often. Although it depends on the level of the learner. Obviously I'm talking about more kind of RFE learners as you get perhaps to more the degree learners, they can manage that a lot more themselves. But yeah, it's something really interesting about using technology to collaborate and that helps to build bonds and you know forge those relationships that actually help people to learn and that's really interesting so what's been your experience of both from the learner perspective and the person that might be driving that as a lecturer of taking on that kind of group work have they kind Mm. of just embraced it and run with it or are they maybe a little bit more hesitant in the beginning and just, uh, yeah, people yeah. listening in may be interested to know, oh, how can I do that if I'm not doing it already? Absolutely. I, I think hesitant is a, is a good word, actually. Often tutors can be a little bit anxious sometimes, especially if they're new to delivering online. There is a certain amount of anxiety as to how will I manage this, how will this work, you know. Although actually generally once our tutors have, uh, you know, have taught a course or taught a project through digital technology, then they start to feel more confident and, and they realise that it's not as scary as it may seem. From a learner point of view, I think the biggest issue is often um, time and flexibility, particularly with, with adult learners. When we're thinking, you know, if they have other family or job commitments, they might be in a group with people that are in different time zones, or they're not so much for us here, but they could be in a group with people who work night shifts or 
you know, his availability to actually study in the study time is a completely different shift pattern, if you like, mm-hmm. which can cause issues sometimes for group work, particularly if there's quite tight deadlines. I guess the key thing is actually learning how to work around that, which is quite a good mm-hmm. kind of problem solving exercise in itself and represents real life much more. I mean, more and more jobs now involve having to work with people you know, across the world, you know, the, again, the joy of technology has connected us globally much more. So it is much more representative and authentic an experience, I guess, is learning how to negotiate that experience. So, so that's very interesting. So you're, when you think about online, the, the first thing that comes to mind isn't just sort of sitting and, and, and working through a curriculum necessarily in a sort of linear fashion that happens to be hosted online. It's more about collaborating with your peers and then also making the most of some of those other ways of engaging with the content so whether it's webinars or video or or so on but it's not the idea of just sort of clicking through a a program of learning no absolutely I think there's always elements of that I guess to some extent because a lot of digital content you know obviously we do put in videos and resources and some interactive content but it's knowing how that is going to enhance the learning and not just making that for the sake of it. I mean, yeah, it's great if you can make a really snazzy interactive activity, but that's not necessarily going to be the great just learning experience. So for us, you know, and for me particularly, it's much more about trying to get those communities and that engagement with peers and kind of start getting learners ready for life after their learning and thinking about how they can uh, developing skills that are lifelong skills, you know, lifelong digital skills, which, I know is a, a big issue, I guess, at the moment and quite a high profile in the media, but it's, I think it is something that's really important. And with all the automation that's happening, there's going to be such a, a shift in job roles and a lot of people will have second careers and will need to you know, upskill digitally. So I think actually learning online helps with developing those skills as well and puts learners in a much better place to be able to connect and communicate via these technologies. And I saw in some some notes prior to our call that you use video in some of your delivery of learning. We may have touched upon that with webinars, but I I wondered if you could expand a little bit on how you go about using video. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, there's a lot of different approaches to videos online and online lecture videos in particular. The feedback generally from learners I found is that if we use software where it's actually capturing a lecture live, the quality is often not that great and there's lots of often distractions, you know, learners that are in the room talking and, you know, perhaps the audio is not the best quality, et cetera, et cetera. They can find it quite difficult to follow. So we try and create bespoke videos for learning. So if we are adding in video content, we, we create them for the learning rather than filming the lectures. And we tend to have a tutor or a subject specialist in, in whatever area it's about addressing the camera directly. And there's kind of a few reasons for that. One, you know, we like that the learners can see the person that there is on the other end of the computer that they're talking to, although they have the opportunity in webinars as well. We like that to kind of be consistent and then to kind of meet some of the teachers around the college virtually. The other reason is there's a, a lot of research about parasocial interactions and how I guess it's the same as how we feel when we're watching a film or um, a TV series, perhaps, and you learn and then you get to know kind of the people that are in the in the television screen you think you, you know them it's that thing like if you're walking down the street and you see a celebrity and you kind of go up to say hello because you watched them on EastEnders for the last how many years and you think you know them it's that kind of scenario I guess that 
if someone's directly addressing you, even though it's um, the screen and they're using informal language and you can feel their body language and it becomes familiar, you can start to build a relationship that way as well. So we, t- we tend to, to try and facilitate that where possible. And all, alongside that, we do use um, a technology at the moment, a, a platform called Arc Video, which allows real-time discussions throughout that video as well. So if you just post comments under the video, it pops up on the timeline of everyone else within the cohort. So every time anyone's watching that video, they'll see exactly where they commented and what that point is and can enable discussion around key points. Very, very interesting. And I mean, engagement, obviously, we've talked about MOOCs and there's a a well-versed issue around engagement there. Do you kind of carry the point that there's an issue around engagement online generally or is is that too crude? Um, (laughs) I think perhaps there is. I think it's something that's starting to be improved with with different technologies. But I think it's a kind of perhaps a societal shift in a way that people kind of consume media in such different ways to they did, you know, five, ten years ago, that we expect everything instantly, we expect everything on demand and in kind of bite-sized chunks as and when we want it. But equally, if we want to go and binge watch a box set, we can do. And I think people are starting to have that kind of approach to their learning a little bit. So they want it to be much more on their terms, which can, I think, result in a lack of engagement. Perhaps, you know, if learning is a bit more structured, then you know, it's not as flexible as perhaps you want. So you go so far and then you have to wait for the rest of the cohort to catch up to be able to move on or it's structured week by week. So you're kind of always waiting for that next bit rather than being able to do as much as you want, which is where, you know, there are obviously some benefits to moots and that often they are kind of free for people to work through as quickly as they want. But then you are missing some of the things that can really help with engagement, like the tutor interaction and facilitation Mm -hmm. and things. We also come up against some challenges in FE, um, particularly with our adult courses, with the awarding body. So a lot of the evidence that's required for meeting assessment criteria is very restricted still. So there's a certain amount of kind of tutor marking and feedback, which is still needed to be very individualized. And certain things have to still be, you know, certain evidence of assessment has to be evidence in a certain way well so that's very interesting I've heard this before so does it also relate to actually being physically in attendance in that way so being physically present in a room which may restrict some of the more innovative practices yeah potentially and and definitely evidence of how many hours Mm. have been completed and things like that can have a massive impact sometimes we can get around the sort of in a room things by doing things virtually so doing Skype you know conferences or or webinars and things to still get that kind of physical mm. element but yeah it can be restrictive and it is something that is an issue I guess that I think the whole sector needs to kind of move forward with that which I think it's starting to but it I think to be more innovative there needs to be that slightly more freedom there. So how are digital learning managers like Hattie working with online learning providers and tech platforms? Global Education Intelligence House Hole on IQ reports that the online programme management market is expected to reach 7.7 billion US dollars by 2025. There are currently over 60 operators in this space, which is a 3 billion US dollar market, growing at 17%. For universities and colleges, online learning providers are valuable partners, helping them to build, recruit and deliver online learning with attributed revenue and access models at a time of financial need as well as student service expectation. 
Yet dropout rates and lack of engagement with online learning are well documented. How do we avoid killing off formal online learning altogether because of this engagement issue? I spoke to two different people tackling this problem. First up, Shira Liberty, Global Director of Education for Selena, a lifestyle, travel and hospitality platform. One of the main things that I do now is that we link to entities of higher education. It may be uh, proper universities or providers of online education or professional entities like digital boot camps or whatever. And we kind of say, okay, guys, you have this syllabus. It's super interesting, but let's take your students on the road and they will travel South America or they will travel Central America. And on the way, we will take this entire syllabus and we'll translate it to reality. We will link it to the actual things they're seeing. So it actually makes sense to learn it in Costa Rica and not in London. So we take the actual content of what they learn and we meet it along the journey. Just to give an example, we have a very exciting project that is coming up and the group is kind of a conglomerate. It's a online education entity that is like the biggest in Mexico and they have a variety of disciplines that they teach. So we take uh, some of their uh, tourism students and education students and business dev students on different levels, bachelor's degrees and master's. And we're hoping to have a group of 25 to 50 people. And they will travel from Panama all the way up to Mexico City um, through land. Yes, like traveling like backpackers, like proper traveling. And then in the middle, they're going to stop in Guatemala, in uh, Antigua. And over there, they're going to meet with a family that has a coffee plantation. It's not a family. It's like a tiny village. It's a big family. And together, they're going to design a sustainable model for them to have fair trade for their coffee, but also to understand how to do them themselves and also to understand how to market it. So every single student in the conglomerate of students has a role in this. So the education people, they're building the programs of how to um, keep this going after we leave, basically, how to educate the entire people who are involved in this process, you know, how to keep this alive. And the business dev people, well, that's very straightforward. They take their knowledge and they kind of assimilate it and they see, okay, we want to do a fair trade model. This is the supplier. This is our market. So this is coming at the end of the trip and the entire syllabus is built upon tiny meetups that are aiming for that huge one in the end. So they actually like take all their knowledge and they they practice it. And and what kind of accreditations they get at the end? Are they working towards, you know, part of a degree or, or what's the kind of outcome at the end? Yes, well? yes. The the accreditation, as you may know, is a very, very like uh, complicated and like a lot of paperwork has to do with it. So this is why we partner with partners that already have the accreditations and right now we do it with the UTEL and they already have the accreditation. They're working towards master's degree and bachelor's degree. Mm -hmm. 
Interesting. And so really the campus in that way is, it's a transient thing. It, it's, it's kind of being with your cohort, but you could be in any different location any day of the week. And then you're sort of based in a particular place, but you know, it's out of your usual Bose environment. What are the main benefits do you think for the learners that are part of, you know, they're, they're at, on the one side, they're traveling on the other hand, they're, they're kind of learning these new skills. I think for this project, which is like a traveling campus, we already we also have stationary campus. We can talk about that later. But for the traveling campus, I think anyone who's traveled know this. Know that when you're traveling, your brain is like awake, no? Like all of your senses are open. You're tasting new stuff. Things smell a bit differently. You're meeting new people. You're meeting new cultures. And you are open to new ideas. This is not a situation where you're going to school from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. and then you're going back to the routine. You are leaving this state of mind of new information and new experiences. And your actual foundations of life, they are being challenged. If online learning sucks when completed in isolation... Will we see more online learning taking place in physical locations around the world with laptop building digital nomads on the search for adventure or business students wanting to see their learning in action? That's brilliant. So you you mentioned the, uh, you know, you've got your traveling campus, as it were, and then you mentioned you've got sort of more static or fixed campuses as well. But again, I'm imagining they're quite different to a university campus as we know it. Yes. I hope, I hope. <laughs> so can <laughs> you describe they're, those they're, a bit? They're new and we love them. <laughs> <laughs> so the previous project that I described is a full-on traveling event, right? You start in Panama, you are traveling every five, every seven days, you change a location, you are going through uh, maybe five different countries and so on. And this, the nomad campus, it's called, it's a nomadic campus that change a location every three months. For those three months, it's completely stationary. And let's say we're launching our first one in a few months. It's going to be in Panama. And it's located in two tiny villages that are very close to each other. One is Pedesi and one is Venao. So it's this mix of a surfer town and a fisherman village. And it's 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 a really nice location, super remote. And what we do, it's like an open call. It's we say, okay, if you are an online student and you are studying online right now, don't study from your parents' basement. If you're renting an apartment, just tablet your apartment and come to study with us. And we guarantee you it's going to be cheaper than renting an apartment in any big metropolis that you're living in. And we guarantee you it's going to be a better experience for your studying than staying in your parents' basement. Even though that you are in a surfer's town, you're still going to have better results. I'm sure you are aware of it, that online education is like, I wouldn't say in a crisis because it is growing all the time, like quite rapidly. But if you look at the actual numbers, the graduation rates are dropping all the time. When I started researching, I remember it was around 15%. And I was like, oh, no, it's 15%. That's so low. And right now, it's a 5 or 4.5%. And I'm not talking about, you know, 
kind of like fringy programs. I'm talking like MIT, Harvard E. They are standing on a 5% graduation rate. That's super, super low. Like it, it means that 95% of their students dropped out somewhere along the, the process. And when I was actually researching in the Weizmann Institute, we had an online program and we researched the online program and it was a very unique one where people actually meet and it's kind of this blended experience and it's been existing for maybe seven years. So it was the first of its kind in Israel and it was a thing, you know, and we noticed that the main issue is like that these kind of students, they don't have a community. They don't have a community. They don't have colleagues. They don't know if they're doing well. They don't know if they're doing poorly. And moreover, they don't have any skills of being an independent learner. So you come on to an online program and you're like, yay, let's do it. I'm going to learn at my own time and it's going to be amazing. And then you realize you've never done this before. And this is genuinely hard. Like, Sometimes I work with my students and I'm not even sure that I would make it, you know, mm-hmm. when I'm talking about 18 year olds and 17 year olds and they're, they're working so hard and so much on their own that 100% sure that this is not for everybody. So if you want to learn online and you're struggling, like this is very, very natural, but you don't have any way to know that this is natural because you're alone with your computer. <laughs> so you are in this cycle of challenges and basically going through hard stuff and you don't have any way to cope. So what we do is that we open the doors and we say, guys, come here, have a community. We're going to support you. We're going to support your process of becoming independent learner. We're going to walk you through the skills of how to plan your week, how to do your studies. And on top of it, we have our own program. So if you want to become a full stack developer, you can do it without in a in in house program. If you wanna become fluent in a language, we have that. So you can either come with your own studying, or you can come and learn with one of our programs, and you get everything. You get accommodation and lots of personal growth kind of mentoring. We do adventure therapy and art therapy, and it's a very I'm not a fan of this word, but it is a super, super holistic experience because we really see our students first as humans and we support them that way. But then again, maybe you're scared of getting sand in your MacBook Air. If sitting by the beach isn't your cup of tea, what about using artificial intelligence to better prompt peer-to-peer learning, support and engagement online? Sense Education aim to do just that. Their website reads, the future of education lies in preserving the learning dynamic of a small class while accommodating massively more students. That will be no surprise to universities and colleges listening in who might be currently chatting to companies like AWS or Salesforce about scaling their class sizes online. But how do we get those classes to engage and, well, learn? It's very funny. To, to get to your point about personalization, you know, I came from a world of personalization and advertising, right? That was what the company that I used to do in advertising is. 
and people took it too far, and I think they're taking it too far in education. And the reason is, in advertising, we're much more alike than we are different. In other words, we are different, and we can reflect those differences, but we're more alike, and even more important, audiences are not individuals. They, they react, and they're social animals. So if I'm promoting a movie, to take a, an example, I don't want to just have one person think about, should I see that movie? I want him to talk to his friends because that provides a sort of resonance in the marketplace that grows and gets stronger and reinforces people. You know, in the, the same thing in a classroom, there's this sort of ego idea that, that kids only learn from material and teachers, as opposed to what really happens is they learn a great deal from each other. And so if everyone's on their own pace doing something, you've ruined the social aspect of people working together, which is something magical that happens in classrooms. So I don't want everyone off in their own cubby hole doing exactly at the pace that they want. I mm. want cohorts together. I want people to be managed together, even if it means it's slightly suboptimal that one person go a little bit faster than the other, because it, it, it destroys the opportunities for people to learn from each other. And that's important for two reasons. One is it's very efficient, but the second is it's very motivating. And over and over again, if you look at research on learning, motivation is such an important part of it. And a lot of motivation that we get is from not just our teachers, but from each other, both from kids who like to teach other kids or from kids who want to learn something because they see their friends learning and, and the like. And so if we just push this like pure world of adaptive learning that everyone sort of goes at their own mm. pace, we ignore the fact that we're social creatures. And every time people ignore that, they make enormous mistakes. Seth Haberman is the CEO of Sense Education. His background is in advertising and communications. Can he make learning sticky? What we do is we look for common patterns and open-ended assignments, whether it's a, you know, something done, a statistics homework done in an Excel spreadsheet or a computer science program or a paragraph on psychology. And we find those common patterns. And if we find multiple instances of those common patterns, we're able to make a determination that the students who have those common instances of patterns have solved the problem in the same way. And if we know that they've solved the problem in the same way, we can give them the same types of feedback. Understanding whether someone got something right or wrong doesn't tell me very much about the social dynamics of a classroom. But understanding how people solve problems, because they may, even if they solve the same way, they may still get a right answer or a wrong answer, tells me a lot more about the dynamics of how people are working together in a classroom. You know, you may find, especially in, in a lot of cases, there are very different ways to solve problems. And by seeing that and I seeing the distribution, we can often see, you know, and, and I'm not talking about plagiarism, I'm just talking about cooperation or sharing ideas. People who share ideas and get some notion of what that means. And sometimes it may mean that I, I should pair people together or aren't paired together, or that I can see a dynamic that I can't see when I'm just looking at abstract performance online. You know, I just see somebody got an 87, someone got a 92, mm -hmm. but unless I have the time to review each one of those things by hand, I cannot make an assessment that, hmm, I wonder if these people I can see you know, assignment to assignment, that they tend to solve problems in the same way. They're always in the same court, uh, cohort of how they solve problems. 
and therefore I know they work together. You know, one of the interesting things, we work with an instructor at Georgia Tech named uh, David Joyner. And one of the things that he noticed in looking at the output from Sense was that students were solving problems in ways he hadn't taught. And this happens a lot, meaning you see students solving problems and you haven't taught the method that they've employed. So where did they learn it? Right? They, maybe they read ahead in a book or they went online or they learned it from each other or things like that. That type of information tells you a lot about your class. And that sort of information can allow you to unify message to create social interactions with a class, even if they're not necessarily in your physical presence. Absolutely. In fact, I think David Joyner may be a listener of the podcast. I think we've had uh, a chat before. Uh, so, um, yeah, we'll have to go back to that and He's one. a great guy, also an incredibly good looking. <laughs> yeah, I think he's got quite uh, abundant hair, if I remember correctly. But, <laughs> More than me, probably. <laughs> <laughs> what was I going to say? Yeah, what's the role of the, you know, how do you work with universities and colleges uh, if you do? So what's the, how does that partnership work? So we mostly work with universities and colleges, and mm-hmm. you know we're still in early days. We're we're an early company, but usually what we do is there's an exchange of data in the beginning. We either provide them with the opportunity to access our platform and let them put their data and analyze it on our platform, or sometimes they give us the data, all anonymized, and ask us to see what sort of common patterns and and how many clusters do we see. So there's usually that first step where either we're training someone to use our platform or they're giving us data and we're seeing how well we can cluster it. And if we find meaningful results in that, meaning we can find common patterns and those common patterns lead to common clusters, then we say this is going to be a a good thing for the school. It's going to save them time. It's going to remove the drudgery from examining homeworks or submissions, tests and things like that. It's also going to give them a larger picture of how students are solving problems. And it's also going to point the direction, not just of the students, but back at the teacher and the content about what's working and what's not, right? If, if 25% of the students are making the same conceptual error, then you have to ask yourself, have I taught that concept well enough? Is there something I should tune? What can I do to make it better? In addition, once we learn how a human instructor, a TA, a professor, a teaching fellow responds to a cluster or a pattern, then we mimic that. We sort of learn that. And that gives us the ability to provide instant feedback to people, whether it's in the form of hints or the form of comments on a submission and a grade. And that really extends the, the class because it means 24 hours a day, seven days a week, a student who needs some help can upload something and get a hint or some piece of feedback where normally that, that sort of process can take one to two weeks in, in many modern mm-hmm. classrooms, and they're already on to the next thing. Or, and it also has the ability to sort of take someone who's stuck and, and get them unstuck. With this new version of online learning, who might it be for? What does a learner look like in these contexts? Will this be something for gap year students in their new guise or for digital nomads as they take their freelance employment around the world with their families in tow? Will students choose a hybrid campus? I think 
basically we targeted this as being our first like kind of projects because it's very straightforward. It's mm-hmm. like we open these kind of campuses, they travel, we have the traveling model, we have the stationary model, and we can collaborate with existing traditional academic universities or curating our own content and students can come and basically of everything we just said, like experience a very interesting, very enriching side of learning and a way to do learning. But I think in the long term, Selena has a much bigger role to play here. And that's with the real nomad community. So Selena is focused on the digital nomads of the world, the ones that are traveling with their computers and working from everywhere. And this community right now is growing immensely and is kind of like, let's say, 25 to 35 years old. And we're really expecting this community to have a baby boom in the upcoming two to three years to start to see nomadic families and not only nomadic Mm -hmm. uh, professionals. And we're kind of thinking, okay, these dudes and dudettes who are going to travel with their kids, they need solutions for education. So we're actually kind of outlining a nomadic education system for kids. So people who are traveling can like basically go into the grid of Selena and know that they're getting the accreditation that they need and they have certain standards and the schools are operating in the same way. But also in the sense that if we bring all these beautiful practices, we bring them to every location that we're at. We're also enriching the current education system, not in a way that we're coming to say, hey, we're, we're, we're doing the best education. It's just another option for the local people who live there. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a mix between having a solution for nomadic people and then they can travel from Panama to Mexico to Nicaragua to wherever and know that they have a frame for their kids to go into and learn and also for the local people to kind of have an alternative solution, not uh, your traditional public school, maybe something that is more Reggio Emilio, Montessori, kind of like this. Mm -hmm semi-different education system. So that's where I'm headed at the long term. I love it. I love it. Well, now I can totally, <laughs> I can totally empathize and, and sort of see uh, and, and concur with your point about digital nomads growing and families because um, I've got a couple of friends that I've got a, a couple that have just had their second child. Uh, he took paternity leave. They traveled around southeast asia and then they lived in the south of france for a few months while she worked because she could do her work remotely as well so yeah and you know if you could then actually add in okay well let's maybe do a bit of learning whilst we're out there as well yeah it's uh people can up sticks more easily than they than they could before yes yes definitely and this solution like i think what's really genuinely wonderful about selena is that it is a platform at the end of the day. And this solution, like this kind of hacks to life of digital nomads is like almost independent of the Selena hospitality business. Or, you know, it's just like people looking at the map saying, okay, there's a Selena center there. 
the kids have a solution. We can do whatever. They can stay in Salina. They cannot stay in Salina. They can live there for two years or they can be there for, let's say, two months. This is a genuine solution. And final question then. So obviously in the higher ed sector, there's a bit of a funding crisis. So either the universities, say, for example, in the UK are trying to do more with less less funding or on the other side of things, you know, you've got a massive student debt crisis where course prices are going up and people are coming out of university without necessarily the skills they need, but a massive bill mm-hmm. at the end. So what's the kind of pricing structure for Selena if people are looking at, you know, coming to a, a nomadic campus or, you know, taking part of some in some of your experiences? How does that stack up against what else is out there? On pricing, I can give you an example that right now, the benchmark for digital bootcamp. So if you want to become a web developer, it's going to cost you between $5,000 to $20,000, depending on the program that you're taking. And our programs are currently on the very, very low end of that. We're taking $6,000 and it includes everything inside of it. It includes like the accommodation. Like the housing, the actual like growth, the internships, like everything. You come and it's not like you pay $6,000 for a bootcamp. This is actually the budget for your life for those three months. And I mean, I've been chatting to various people for this episode. I just wondered what your thoughts were on how online learning, how that interacts with the sort of, you know, learning in a more physical setting. So how do you see the two interacting? Well, I mean, that's tricky because I think there's a lot of advantages to to, to sort of people seeing each other at least once or twice in 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 the case of classroom. And what I think will evolve, I think we're sort of in a awkward stage between full classroom and online is I think you'll have these hybrid classes where you can have a very large class and there'll be meetups in different cities where people who are working on the, you know, taking uh, Shakespeare with, you know, Professor Leeds, it turns out there are 15 other people in uh, New York City doing it and you might as well meet up with them. And so you'll have these sort of hybrid meetup classrooms at a WeWork or something like that. I have no connection to WeWork. I just think it's, it, that's the sort of thing that you might see so that people will physically be able to interact. I think there'll be much more use of a video in a two-way fashion to support those types of things, because I think it's hard to to sort of be isolated. I think certainly some kids can do it. They have the discipline to just do everything on their own. But for others, um, having those social interactions are important. So students are searching for ever more learning opportunities. For universities, this doesn't have to be a negative. Perhaps even it's what they want for their students to be active and eager, engaged learners. Students are searching for online resources outside of that that the university would provide. So on that basis, I mean, what do you see the relationship between perhaps the role of the university and online sort of learning partners or or resources that you know a student can navigate and sort of help enhance their experience I suppose. I think universities would say this is what they want their students to do mm. because the the reality is is that you know the university 
is is not just about getting a degree. It is about understanding the subject. It's about exploring the subject beyond the, the, the scope even of, of what's in the modules that a student is undertaking. And we know that students who go outside the box and go outside the core resources that are on the reading list or on the module resources often get higher class degrees as a result because they've got a wider expanse of, of understanding within that particular topic. And, and students have been doing this for years, to be honest. You know, they, they've gone out and, and looked at things like newspapers and magazines and, and they've maybe even gone off to archives. What online and digital does is it allows a much wider choice of resources, which comes with a huge challenge as well, is how do you judge which resources are good, which resources are bad? There's a whole digital literacy aspect there about understanding what resources are, are good or bad. And we know that then working with students going out to, to do things like MOOCs from other universities or using resources from other places or online companies does actually give them that breadth of discovery that they need in order to improve their outcomes on their degrees. And don't forget, community is everything. Probably the most influential part of my career and part of my kind of journey because I still see this as a journey, a learning journey about the use of tech because technology doesn't stand still. The technology we were using five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago is not the same technology now. We, we kind of assume, oh, we need to get this, we need to get people using technology as though it's a static thing. It isn't. It's constantly changing. But I think, that, as I was saying, the one of the things that probably had the biggest impact and probably the one that I would recommend is communities on Twitter. We know social media can be toxic at times, and to be honest, it is. It can be one of the things where I've seen some awful stuff happening, and I think that that's terrible. But then again, I've seen awful stuff happen on in lots of different places and lots of different spaces. But for me, the, the network I've built up on Twitter has been extremely valuable. I can throw ideas out there. You know, I can go, "Is this just me?" And sometimes it is, and sometimes it is. You know, you get that kind of agreement. There are some great, uh, we call them tweet chats, but really they are communities. There's the LTHE chat, happens every Wednesday, where people who deliver teaching and learning in HE get together and talk about different subjects on on Twitter. There's uh, FEMED Tech, which I think is a really interesting group who are looking about the role of women in ed tech. Because you know, which is something that's really important to understand the value that they, they add, and sometimes the, the discrimination that they often face in the workplace. So you know, there's these different kinds of communities. They inspire me. I work with them. It's really great to be able to just kind of throw ideas out there, find new stuff, find news, find links, inspiration. Absolutely, and I think you know, that to me is, is, is probably been the biggest influence has been, has been the Twitter more than anything else. So currently, each Selena is treated as a tiny community center where you have uh, wellness. Obviously, you have tours, you have travel, you have we have surfing schools all over, and also you have quite a bunch of educational and community related projects that are happening in each location. Um, so it's a very vague definition, I think. But this is the reality. We kind of create and make it alive all the time. For us, you know, and for me in particular, it's much more about trying to get those communities and that engagement with peers and kind of start getting learners ready for life after their learning and, and thinking about how they can, you know, uh, uh, developing the skills that are lifelong. 
That's all for this week. If you're wondering what all this means for our mental health as learners and educators, or how we can further develop mentor relationships in learning, or how we can stop lazy narratives around tech being evil, then tune in again. Thanks also to everyone who has messaged in with your comments on the series so far, including Dr. Sam Fasich, Assistant Professor of Education at Grove City College, who listens in from the US. Hello, EdTech Podcast, uh, Sophie, or EdTech Podcast team. Uh, my name is Sam Fasich, and I'm a professor at Grove City College, where I teach future teachers all about educational technology, special education. Recently wrote a book called Edgy Magic, a guide for pre-service teachers. And I would love to share a little bit about how I use technology, either to help future uh, special ed teachers or uh, about ed tech in general. We do lots of different things related to augmented reality, virtual reality, formative assessment pieces. So anything you're interested in, I'm happy to share. And I can't wait to see how we can partner. Have a lovely Tuesday and I look forward to uh, chatting with you further about this opportunity. Hello also to Alan Bartlett, CEO of Scintilla AI. Hi, we're a new edtech company called Scintilla.ai. We've just started a new web-based application called Spark, which is a space retrieval knowledge practice app that we're trialing across the country and is going really well. We're expanding into primaries and secondaries, and we really want to be involved in the change in schools to help even out the playing field for all children. So um, yeah, we'd love to speak to anybody who's interested. Thanks also to my guests and you for listening. You can join in the conversation online at hashtag edu4 underscore zero at JISC or at Podcast EdTech on Twitter and all the other social medias. You can also leave your feedback for inclusion in the podcast next time in our 90 second voicemail at speakpipe.com forward slash the EdTech podcast. And finally... If you want to listen back to each full-length and unedited interview included in this episode, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash the EdTech podcast. For all the show notes, it's the EdTechPodcast.com. That's all from me. Have a great week. Bye-bye. <laughs>